As we come to read God's word, let's pray together. Our Father, in this Advent time, we bring our often distracted hearts to you. We ask you that you would settle our souls from noise. And we ask you that you would meet us in the stillness and in the beauty of your words. Amen. The readings from Matthew, chapter 1. And uh, Matthew's speaking here about Christ. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed, he will not break. And a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? The Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, written 700 years earlier. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people, and life to all those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you. I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. 
I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. New things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you're uh, getting excited about Christmas this year. We just put our tree up yesterday. Very exciting and wholesome, family fun. Um, I wonder how you're feeling about Christmas this year. I wonder how you're feeling about it as you prepare to go home, some of you, for, to different places to celebrate Christmas. Have, have, you any, have you had any time yet, amidst all the busyness, to think about and reflect on the first Christmas, the nativity story? How are you feeling about that Christmas, this Christmas? Last week, I was at a Christmas carol service, and the person giving the address opened his address with a question. He said, what's the most exciting news you've ever heard? And is it Christmas? And he said, if it's not Christmas, can I make a case for why it should be? And I thought he made an interesting and provocative point. Because if we in this room today don't think at the moment that Christmas is the best news we've ever heard, then it's probably time we took another look at it. This morning, we're, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 42 that Heather just read for us. And this passage gives us an insight into why Christmas is the best news you'll ever hear. Because it peels back the curtain um, of this innocent scene of Bethlehem, of a baby in a manger. And it shows us that that scene is something of enormous and cosmic and universal significance. So in our current extended Advent series here on Sunday mornings, we've been, we're spending a few weeks in uh, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah. And after 39 chapters of bad news in a world of darkness and pain, when really the, the question that's being asked is, where is God in this mess? Then in chapter 40, God brings a message of comfort. And Colin was helping us uh, look at that last week. And then in chapter 42, God says, let me now introduce you to my servant who will bring this comfort. And the opening verses of chapter 42 are, are, are the first of what's called the servant songs in Isaiah. And Isaiah has three more songs about this servant in the following chapters, uh, which teach us how this servant will bring this comfort. And the big question at the time was, who is this servant? Because it was meant to be the people of Israel, but they couldn't bring any comfort because they'd failed in their calling to be a light to the nations. But then when you get to the New Testament, like the passage we read in Matthew, it's clear that this servant is in fact Jesus Christ. And there's also a sense in the rest of the New Testament um, that then the work of the servant is given over to the church. And so you could, in one sense, read Isaiah 42 as a description of what we as Christians are to be like, as we are 
a light to the world. But all I want to focus on this morning is what this passage tells us about Jesus, about the baby in the manger, and about why Christmas is such good news. Three simple questions this song answers about the baby in the manger. Who is he? What has he come to do? And how does he go about doing it? In what manner does he do it? Now, I want to touch briefly on the first two questions and then focus mostly on the third one. Who is he? What does he come to do? And how does he do it? First question, who is he? He is the beloved son of God. Look at verse one. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now the word uphold here means to hold fast or even as one person has put it, to keep for himself. God the father loved his son so much that he held him fast and he could have done so for all eternity. And yet for the love of humanity, he bid him come down to earth and he gave him to us. And you see here, verse one, that there's a Trinitarian work going on in this scene in Bethlehem. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved. And then interestingly, you see exactly the same language at the beginning of Mark's gospel, at the scene of Jesus' baptism, where the Spirit descends upon Jesus in the water. And the Father says in a loud voice, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. So who is the servant? It is clearly Jesus. He is the beloved Son of God, sent lovingly by his Father and enabled by the Spirit. Who is he? Second question, what has he come to do? And his purpose is clear at the end of verse 1. I will put my Spirit on him, and he, the servant, will bring justice to the nations. Now, many of you here are passionate about justice. And we live in a culture, don't we, that is, that is passionate about justice. And when we talk about justice in our culture, we tend to mean something like freedom or fairness for the oppressed, right? Now, that is absolutely part of the Christian vision for justice. But Isaiah's vision for justice here is broader than that. It includes that, but it's more, there's more to it. There are at least three elements here to Isaiah's definition of justice. Firstly, um, there's, there's an element of revelation, of revealing God's will. Another way of translating the end of verse one is, he will bring justice to the nations, or he will bring my judgments to the nations. In other words, this servant will declare the decrees of God. What God has to say about the world will be revealed by this servant. But then there's more to the job description in verses six and seven. So you see here at end of verse six who this justice is for, that he will, this servant will be a covenant for Israel, but he will also be a light to the Gentiles. This is for everyone. And then he says, verse seven, that this servant will open eyes that are blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see that this, this act, verse 7, these actions of the servant, involve both physical deliverance and spiritual 
deliverance. So the reading we had in Matthew 12, here's all of it. See, this reading, this section starts with, verse 9, the healing of a man with a shriveled hand. So there's a physical healing. And then it ends with Jesus healing a demon-possessed man, a spiritual healing. And in the middle, to explain those healings, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 42 as if to say, I am this servant and this is me bringing forth this justice. So the justice that this servant brings involves revelation, it involves physical deliverance and spiritual deliverance. He will make known God's purposes to the world. He will undo all the effects of sin in the world and he will restore us spiritually into relationship with God. Who is he? He's the servant is the beloved son of God and he comes to bring justice to the nations. Now, third question, how does he go about it? How does he do it? Now, this is the thing that most stands out to me from this passage. There's an astonishingly beautiful paradox about the baby in the manger, this servant. He brings us exactly what we need. But he does it in a way that none of us would expect. He brings us exactly what we need, but does it in a way that none of us would expect. Let me, let me just show you from here three things that Jesus does for us and the manner in which he does it. First thing he does, he makes God known and yet he does it through humility. Now, we've seen at the end of verse 1 that he will bring God's justice or God's judgments to the nations. And yet, how does he go about it? Verse 2. It says, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Now, how does this make sense? Because clearly, when, when Jesus went about his ministry, he did speak in the streets, right? And he, he preached to crowds of people. Well, the emphasis here, here is simply that he didn't go about promoting himself. He wasn't loud or aggressive in trying to make himself heard above the other voices. And we saw this in Matthew 12, where it says, uh, verse 15, in the end of verse 15, it says that a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill, but then he warned them not to tell others about him. And Matthew then goes on to say that that, this was to fulfill this very verse in Isaiah. And we see this throughout the Gospels, don't we? That Jesus refused to promote himself. He always told people after he'd healed them, don't go telling people about this. Why would he do that? Well, I think we have real trouble today understanding this. Because we live in a culture that is obsessed with self-promotion. Think of how long you take perfecting a picture before you put it up on Instagram. Not just you, I do this too. <laughs> I do it all the time. We, always, we want to look good on the internet, don't we? We're always promoting our best selves. Or have you ever been in a conversation where you're not really listening to the person in front of you because actually what you're doing is you're preparing your answer. You're, you're thinking about how best to get your point across so that you can portray yourself in your best light. You ever done that? 
we're always promoting ourselves. I was thinking this week about business. I like this guy's advertising. Can you read that? It says, painter, decorator, interior and exterior finishes, New York, Paris, Madrid, but mostly the Glasgow area. <laughs> now, I don't know the first thing about business, but it seems to me that if you're starting a business, you can't do it without some form of self-promotion, right? Whether it's advertising or word of mouth or getting reviews on your website. It's simply how you go about getting business, right? See, so there's some forms of self-promotion in our culture that are kind of necessary to exist in our culture. But then the extreme version you get of this is, of course, social media influencers. Think about how they go about generating business. So they, they promote themselves in order to grow their platform so that then they can get more money out of promoting products. So that then that grows their platform. So that then they can get more money and the cycle continues. Now, let's not get sidetracked about the ethics or the moral virtue of running such a social media influencing business. But my point is simply this. We cannot comprehend existing we can't even comprehend getting on in life without some form of self-promotion. We can't even conceive of the idea of having a mission or a purpose without promoting it in some way. Jesus never promoted himself. He refused to do it. And you know, he's the one person in the universe who had every reason to self-promote. He's the only person who ever existed who had 100% integrity. His mission was the most important mission in history. And yet he never went about the streets making a song and dance about himself. Isn't that extraordinary? And you know, one of the greatest mysteries of the Gospels is why did he keep telling people to stop talking about him? I think maybe the best answer is simply that his entire purpose was to humble himself. We're told in Philippians 2 that, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, of a baby in a manger, and he humbled himself even to death on a cross. He made God known, and yet he did it through the most astonishing humility the world has ever seen. That's the first thing he does. He, he makes God known, but he does it through humility. Secondly, he brings healing, and yet he does it with extraordinary gentleness. Often what is lacking in our wider culture and also what is lacking in our cultural discourse, and also, sadly, is lacking in some of our Christian leadership when we see examples of people abusing their positions of power, is a lack of gentleness towards others, especially towards those who are hurting. And yet look at how Jesus treats people. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick 
he will not snuff out. I wonder if you feel like either of those things. A hollow reed cracks easily under pressure, and when it's bruised, it's considered useless or beyond repair. And a smouldering wick may have burned brightly in the past, but struggles to burn effectively, and so is considered past it or close to extinction. Do you feel broken beyond repair? Do you feel like your light is about to go out? I often feel like a bruised reed. I've been bruised in the past, and when you carry a bruise, it remains sore and sensitive to touch, doesn't it, for quite a while afterwards. I feel like a bruised reed, and I often feel like I'm of not much use. But I've been really helped this week reading uh, this book. Can I just show you this book? Look at that. Look at that. Isn't that a thing of beauty? They don't make book covers like that anymore. It literally glows in the dark, that book. It's fantastic. <laughs> this, is a, this is a book. That is a, I've been really helped reading this guy. This is a Puritan preacher called Richard Sibbs. And he had a famous sermon, which he first, print, uh, first preached in the year 1630, called The Bruised Reed. And it was based on this verse. And he is so warm and pastorally helpful. And he says two things about Jesus here, and then says what we should do with it. The first thing he says from this passage is that Jesus is drawn to the bruised reed. He is drawn to the bruised reed. If you feel like a bruised reed, Jesus is for you. He is for you. Do you know, if, you, if you're a bruised person, the obvious question that you have for God is, if you love me, why do I have to get bruised? Surely there's an easier way. Do you know, I think this is really hard to grapple with. But Richard Sibbs says, actually, there are several reasons why, out of love for us, God would allow us to be bruised. He says, to come to God in the first place, we have to be bruised. Because often it's only when we are bruised that we realize that we need him. And to remain in him, to keep depending on him, sometimes we need bruising to remind us that we're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as strong as what we try and portray to others. But also, sometimes, God allows us to be bruised for the benefit of others. And Richard said, lists a number of characters in the Bible who were bruised significantly for our benefit. He says, David was bruised by the consequences of his own sin. He says, Simon Peter was bruised. And he wept bitterly after he denied that he knew Jesus. The Apostle Paul was bruised by his thorn in the flesh. And Richard Sibbs says, I think this is so helpful, he says, he says, they were bruised for our benefit. He says, the people of God cannot be without these examples. The heroical deeds of those great worthies do not comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do. Do you know, it might be your bruising 
that is of most help for people, more than all of the achievements that you can manage in life. And if you're feeling bruised this morning, you might not see this, but there are people around you who are greatly encouraged by your example. And you might think, you know, what kind of example am I giving off? I'm barely standing up here. But they're thinking, this person is upright only because of the grace of God. So maybe he can help me too. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is drawn to the bruised reed. But also, Richard Sib says, Jesus will not break the bruised reed. You know, several scholars point out in verse 3 that, those, that though it's phrased in the negative, the positive is also implied. So it's not just that he won't break the bruised reed, but he will positively build it up again. It's not just that he won't snuff out the smoldering wick, but actually he will fan the in, back into flame. And you know, there's a promise that I love later on in Isaiah chapter 61. He says that even though you may continue to feel like a bruised reed, actually what God is doing in your life is he's growing you into an oak of righteousness on which he will display his beauty. Is that not incredible? You will feel like a reed even while he's doing that. He is turning you into an oak. I love that. And Richard Sibb says, you know, if you doubt that, if you doubt that Jesus is for you, and that he will not break you. If you doubt that, think of the ways that Jesus is described in the New Testament. He is a husband, a shepherd, a brother. Those are caring terms. Think about the names for him that are borrowed from the mildest of creatures. A lamb, a hen who cares for his chicks. They all show his tender care, don't they? He even says, think, think about his baptism. You know, we were, just, we were just thinking about that a moment ago from Mark chapter 1. Do you know, I've never really thought about this before until this week. But have you ever wondered why, at Jesus' baptism, why does the Spirit descend upon him like a dove? Like, why a dove? Like, why not an eagle? Or, you know, something really impressive like a peregrine falcon or something. But what is it about a dove? It's because doves are gentle. And that's a picture of the heart of Jesus. Sib says, at his baptism, the Holy Ghost sat on him in the shape of a dove to show that he should be a dove-like, gentle mediator. Jesus is drawn to bruised reeds and he will not break you. So what do we do with that? What do we do with it? Richard Sib says two things. He says, firstly, just come to him. Come to him. Come boldly to his throne of grace. Don't let your bruises or sins discourage you when he appears there only for bruised and sinful people. Come to him. But secondly, do not despair. When you feel bruised, let this comfort you, that he allows it to happen because he wants you to be with him. Jesus' course for us is to wound, then to heal. No sound whole soul shall ever enter into heaven. If Christ be so merciful as not to break me, I will not break myself by despair. 
Jesus is just amazing in his gentleness. He will not break the bruised reed. The third amazing thing that Jesus does, he defeats evil, and yet he does it through weakness. Jesus isn't just a nice person. He doesn't just comfort broken people. But he can heal. He has extraordinary power. It says in verse 7 that he is able to take on the captivity and darkness of evil and defeat it completely. And yet the way that he does it is so surprising. Verse 4, it says he will not falter or be discouraged. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Now, this isn't just talking about his persistence, but actually Isaiah is repeating the language of verse 3. So you, it, you could read verse 4 as he will not be bruised or snuffed out until he completes his task. He identifies with our bruising. He takes it upon himself. Now, the irony here, verse 4, is, of course, that Jesus would actually be bruised and snuffed out. And that's made more explicit in the later servant songs, especially in Isaiah 53, which we're going to look at next week. He will experience the suffering, but it won't stop him from establishing justice. But rather, him experiencing the bruising and the snuffing that we experience is the means by which he establishes justice. And we see that most clearly in his death on the cross. He took on our sin and was bruised for it in our place. He took on our darkness and was snuffed out for it. But it didn't deny him victory. It established his victory. And if you're someone who feels broken by evil, if you feel stuck in a dungeon, you know, he took on the darkness and he won. And that means that you can be freed. And this is why Christmas is the best news you've ever heard. It's not just who Jesus is, the beloved son of God. It's not just what he came to do to bring justice to the nations. Those things are amazing. They are the gospel. That is the good news. But it's also the manner in which he does those things. The way he is so disposed in his heart toward us and so tender in his comfort that is the best news in the world. This scene in the manger is good news on a cosmic scale. This servant, born as a baby, has infinite power to overcome all the darkness in the world and yet has infinite gentleness to stoop down to the most broken of people. If you feel broken this morning, whatever has been done to you, whatever you have done to yourself or to others, come to him. Don't despair, but know both his comfort and the power of his healing and his freedom.
Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful and we praise you for the tender comfort of Jesus. Thank you that you loved him so much and yet you gave him to us. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for what you have come to do, and for the way in which you do it. Praise you for your gentleness, for your taking on of weakness, for your humility. Fill us with your spirit afresh, we pray. May we know your healing power this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.